Today we're starting a new teaching series called Stand. We've talked a lot already this morning about stand, taking a stand. Uh, and it's going to be the story of the life of Daniel. We're calling it a God chaser story because one of our three goals uh, as a church is that each one of us learn to be God chasing, grace shaped, love agents. And being a God chaser is all about, you know, kind of uh, putting every decision of your life, every passion and every desire that you have, every choice that you have to make, every hobby, every joy, every sorrow, and, and putting God in the center of that and going, man, how can, I, how can I run this through the filter of God is real? Um, and so we're studying the life of Daniel for the next several weeks. I think we're going to do five weeks. Uh, there's a guy named Gene Get, Gintz, who, uh, G-E-T-Z, Gets. Gene Getz. Uh, he's an author of several books, and one thing he does is profile men that stories are in the Bible, and he's got just a, a series of them. I think there's over a dozen that I've seen, and, uh, and, he's, and he writes one on the book of Daniel, and he talks about Daniel, and he says, if you looked at all the men of the Bible, uh, and his series is called Men of Character, okay? So if you looked at all the men of the Bible, and if you took a list of people, you might know these names, Abraham, and Joshua, and Samuel, and Paul, and if you were to put them on like a dream team of people that serve God with their lives or I would call them God chasers, that Daniel might be the captain of that team. Daniel's a guy that we can learn a lot from in terms of what it means to stand up in a world that's not necessarily all for God. Uh, he knew how to take a stand. And so for the next month or so, we're going to be studying his story. Uh, if you've got a Bible today and you want to go ahead and grab it, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. It's not an easy one to find if you don't look at it often, but feel free to look at the index in the front. No matter what's going on in your life right now, maybe you had a bad week. I'm going to tell you, grab the book of Daniel, flip over there or scroll down on your device and let's just read that together. Before we get into that, uh, let me talk a second about standing up, taking a stand. You know, taking a stand can be intimidating. It is, especially when you have to do it alone. You ever be that long, lone dog at work that has a new idea or, or something that you've got to push through or you've got to take a stand in a way? Um, a few years ago, um, I learned that it's easier to take a stand if you don't have to do it alone. Uh, some of you guys actually gave me one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Right before our church launched, right before our very first Sunday, a group of like our, our core church family came together. There were about 20 or 30 of us, and they came together, and they they gave me the gift. Many of you know that I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan, right? They gave me the gift of tickets to a Cowboys game. I'd never been to a game before. And to make it even more awesome, it was actually uh, in the stadium where the Redskins play, okay? Cowboys, Redskins. What an awesome game for a Cowboys fan to go through. Um, and so uh, I got to go to that game with my wife. It was, it was an awesome experience. But I tell you what, going to that game, talk about standing out in a crowd. Man, I walk in with like me and my wife go, and we're like in our Cowboys hoodies and jerseys and hats, and we're like, yeah, go Cowboys. We walk into an ocean of burgundy and gold, and it's just like, we walk in, people are calling us all kinds of names. I'm like, you don't even know me. How'd you know that? You know, like they're calling me all kinds of things, and I'm walking through, and we walk in, and our section is, of course, it's full of Redskins fans, and, and, and we sit next to this guy. The guy has had season tickets, I think he said, for like 30 years. Okay, he's been to like every home game for 30 years, so he's just like, oh, you know, I mean, you're a Wepper Snapper bandwagon fan. I'm like, the cat, how am I a bandwagon fan? The Cowboys haven't even been good lately. And he just starts trashing me. He starts talking about highlights from Cowboys Redskins games from like the early 80s. I'm like, dude, I wasn't, I wasn't even born during the games you're talking about. I don't even know what you're talking about. He goes on and on. And, and we stood out, but you know, I love it because we weren't alone. And right in front of us was another diehard cowboy fan. I see his jersey, and I kind of I feel affectionate towards him immediately. I'm like, it's amazing how, friends, how quick you can make best friends at a sporting event. And I don't even know his name. I came to think of him as the high five guy. That's kind of what I call him in my head. Because every five minutes, he was just like, yeah! 
And it's like me and my wife. So we're high-fiving this guy. I'm like, hey, high-five guy all the time. He offered us drinks one time. Get you something. I'm like, no, we're good. Thanks. I don't know this guy, but we're buddies. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it was a tight game, okay? It comes down to the wires. If I remember correctly, it comes down to the wire, and the Cowboys were behind, but then they rallied back, and they, they took the lead. And at the very end, they won the game. It was like, ah! And all the Red Cancer fans were like, boo, we hate you. But immediately, all of a sudden, I find myself in the embrace of High Five Guy, and he's shaking me like a can of spray paint. I'm like, oh, we won! You know, it's like, yeah, love this guy. Never saw him again. You know, it's so much easier to take a stand when you're in an outside place when you're not doing it alone. That's one thing I love about church family. We don't have to do this alone. Of course, this, this story about football, that's, that's silly. Uh, you know, it's just a game, and, and I really, I get that. But there are some serious areas in life where we do have to take a stand. Serious situation. I mean, we just, we just had an election, right? And our country was just divided once again. And there have been people for months and months standing on this issue or that, going head to head. People having to face crowds of people that were in opposition to them and deciding, am I going to take this or am I going to run? And so many of them just stood. And and I don't care what side of the political line you're on, man. You just got to respect that person for being willing to just stand and take that. In professional sports, and back to football, there's been a stand being taken by many professional athletes for something that they really, really see as a major issue. And it's not so much a stand as it is a kneel, right? And during the national anthem, they're going to they're gonna make their point any way that they can. It takes boldness. It takes courage. And it doesn't matter if you agree with any of those things or not that they're standing for. You've got to admire a person who's willing to stand out in a crowd and say, look, whatever happens, I'm going to stand on this. And I'm not going to just stand by while something else happens. I've got to do what I can do. As a church, as individuals, I want to be a group of people who can take a stand for the things that are important to God. And that we can shine light into dark places, and as you well know, if you've been in those dark situations, it is hard to choose to shine light, because sometimes it's easier just to say, I'd rather fade into the shadow. As a church, uh, we look to the Bible for answers to life's most important questions, and so that's why we're stepping into the book of Daniel today. If you already got your Bibles out, uh, we'll be in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We're actually going to read the entire chapter today. We're going to get through uh, almost every word in the first half of the book of Daniel while we go through this series. Uh, You'll see later why we're not doing the whole thing. It kind of breaks up in half in in, in the way the story is told there. But man, uh, let's look at that today. Let's take a look at the story of Daniel, and let's see what we can learn from him. This is a guy who grew up in a world that was completely opposed to his God, but was able to stand and make a difference. We're going to look at the first two verses, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to jump right in. The screen uh, behind me will also have the words. And I want to say this. If you uh, don't have a Bible of your own that's a really good, easy-to-read version of the Bible, uh, we do have those underneath the chairs here. And if you want to just use one today and to take it home with you after today, we want everyone to have a good, readable version of the Bible. Please feel free to do that. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Quick side note, notice there are two kings. Okay, we're going to talk about those in a second. Verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Okay, so from the onset of this story, you see there are two kings, they're opposing forces. Let me just kind of break those down for you so you can kind of understand where these guys are coming from. There are two kings. The first king that we see is a guy named Jehoiakim. 
Jehoiakim was a king of the Jewish people. Okay, just so we can stick with the track here. Everybody say Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to kind of be over here. This is Jehoiakim's area when I talk about him. So Jehoiakim is the king of the Jews. Now, both of these kings, this guy over here, his name is, say, Nebuchadnezzar. Let's hear that. Nebuchadnezzar, all right? So Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, not popular names today, but they were names back then. Jehoiakim is a king of the Jews, and he is not a good king to the Jewish people. You can read more about his story in 2 Kings uh, chapters 23 and 24. I highly recommend that you go back this week and and look at 2 Kings 23 and 24. Just read his story, because it'll give you some context of what's happening in the whole book of Daniel. Also in Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah is another book of the Old Testament, and in Jeremiah 36, we actually see why Jehoiakim was such a bad king. Basically, the nation of Judah was in its final hours. Okay, this is the, the Jewish people and their nation. You might have heard of people like King David and King Solomon and all the kings that came after them. Jehoiakim was the last of that line as that nation begins to crumble. They turned their back on God. They were worshiping uh, idols and demons and doing all kinds of terrible things. And over and over, God told them through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who I just talked about, the the prophets would come and say, listen, God is upset. You need to turn back to God or your way is going to be blocked. You You can't have the blessings of God if you're not willing to turn to him. Over and over, they did that, but the people didn't listen. And so God said through the prophets, fine, your nation will be destroyed. I'm going to remove my blessing at this time from the nation. Well, Jehoiakim was the last straw of all that disobedience. And so during the time of Jehoiakim, he got so full of himself and thinking that, I don't know, he was God or that God was a joke. Listen to what he did. This is what you read about in Jeremiah chapter 36. He talks to some of his assistants and he says, listen, go down to the temple and bring me up the scrolls of God's law. Bring them up here. So they do. And he said, now read them to me. So he has them read the law of God. This is basically, this is their scriptures. What we have today is the Old Testament. And he begins, the person begins reading the law. And Jehoiakim, after a page or so is done, he cut it out of the scrolls. He ripped it up. And he threw it into the fire pit in his room. As a solid stance to say, God is dead to me. And that was like the last straw for the kings of Judah. And so God decided, I'm going to take action. Meet King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly man by any stretch of the imagination, but God used him to teach the Jews a lesson. Nebuchadnezzar. It's a long name, Nebuchadnezzar. You can call him Neb if you want to. Uh, but Daniel uh, kind of summarizes who he is. He's, he's the king of, of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. They were the big dogs in the east at the time, and there's a lot of history there. Uh, but Daniel summarizes it by showing this in this first two verse. He says, first, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and, and he puts a siege on, on, on Jerusalem. And, and if you know, you, the army surrounds you, you. You can't get out. Nobody can get in. And eventually, you have to you know, give up, surrender, or, or die. And so that's the first step. And then he goes into this place, and he finds their holiest place. Nebuchadnezzar sends his crew in, and they go to the temple. And inside the temple, they take some of the most sacred articles. It says the temple articles, things that have been set aside for God. He takes them, and he takes them away to his home place, to Babylon and he puts them in the temple of their false gods. And this is a way of slapping the Jews in the face and saying, listen, not only am I going to destroy your city, I'm also going to destroy your religion. Which apparently was not a big deal to Jehoiakim, but it was a statement to the rest of the Jews. There's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. So then we read on to verse 3. So keep on scrolling in your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen. Verse 3, it says, Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar now, Then Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, his, his chief of his officials. Okay, so this is Ashpenaz is an important person in the story. He ordered Ashpenaz to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and then after that, they were to enter the king's service. So check out what Nebuchadnezzar has done here. In in going to the temple and taking the sacred articles that have been set aside for God, which we later found out are thousands of gold and silver uh, goblets, and and we'll find that out later in the story in a few chapters. In doing that, Nebuchadnezzar attempts effectively to erase the Jews' past. He says, listen, your, your religion, your relationship with your God, it's over. I'm taking over your temple now. He's destroying their past. And then he comes in and he destroys the city. He puts it under siege, and then later he destroys it. He effectively is destroying their present. And then in one final move of humiliation to the Jewish people, he comes in and he takes the, the brightest and those of greatest aptitude of the young men of nobility and royalty. He takes those men away. And he says, I'm also going to destroy your future. I want you guys to be nothing compared to me. And I'm going to take these young men, and I'm going to brainwash them and make them mine. So one of the young men that Nebuchadnezzar takes away is a guy named Daniel. Daniel. And the rest of this book is about his life and what he does in the face of just insurmountable odds, it would seem. At this time, Daniel's probably about 15 years old. Okay, And by the end of his story, he's in his 80s. And so this book encompasses a lot of history and a lot of his time. Um, The rest of this book is about his life. And it's all about how he takes a stand for God in in a place that is not for his God. Chapter 1 of Daniel is the story of his first stand. As a young man, what were you doing when you were 15 years old? I'm embarrassed to say, (laughs) you know. His 15-year-old story gets in the Bible, okay. Verse 6. Let's step into Daniel's life. It says, among those who were chosen from some of Judah, there was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, some foreign names, but stick with it because the names do matter. The chief official, Ashmanaz, gives them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. Maybe you've heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that, the fiery furnace? This is these same guys, but those are their Babylonian names. They had different names. So one of the first things the Babylonians does is he takes these young guys and he changes their names. We meet these four particular guys because they eventually rise to the top of the list. There, there, may have, there, were, there were probably dozens, if not hundreds, of these young men that were taken. But these four, they're the cream of the crop, and they rise to the top. And uh, let's talk about them because what the first thing they do is change their names from their Jewish names to Babylonian names. Their Jewish names are significant because all four of these guys have the name of their God embedded within their name. For example, let's look at them. The name of Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael. It means who is like our God. Azariah. It means God has helped. You see, every time they heard their names before, they were reminded of who their God was. Their parents, I don't know if they were super uh, good to God. My guess is they probably were faithful as, as well as their sons end up turning out. But one thing that their parents did for them as a gift was to say, every time someone says your name, I want you to remember your God. Names are important. You ever received a name or a label that just made you take a step down, a notch down because, oh, it degraded you? Or has anyone ever given you an encouraging name or given you a step up by calling you something, like valuable, Right? Names matter. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to rebrand and brainwash these four guys. 
to their new names were all tributes to pagan gods. So that every time someone called them from now on, they might associate their new name with the new sheriff in town and forget about their past. Now, I'm sure that some of the boys did forget, and they probably moved on to Babylonian uh, ways, but not these four. They take a stand. Their names were changed. They were forced to become Babylonians, and Ashpenaz, that chief official guy, if you look back, it says that his job was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Can you even imagine that task? Like just being, imagine, be sent to a new place. I don't know what all of your backgrounds and the language and the education you've had, but I picked a few here. Imagine being plucked up from where you are in Wilmington and placed in China, right? Or maybe Argentina or, or Tunisia, okay? These are just three completely different cultures. Imagine going there and the king or the governor or the prime minister or whatever of that area says, okay, while you live here, you need to learn our language and you need to learn our literature and you need to become one of the smartest people in our country. That's your job. Can you imagine that task for these young men and their face with that? And then the king also says, listen, I want you to be well fed. I want you to be well taken care of. So we look again at verse 5. It says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. I want to tell you, this has been an effective way of, of taking over a culture for, for you know, thousands of years. Uh, the Romans excelled in it. They would go into an area, and they would just kind of brainwash the people and make them, and they let them keep some of their culture, but they would also say, listen, you need to learn our language, you need to use our currency, you need to do this, and you need to do that, because you begin to think of yourself, in this case, as a Babylonian. And that was his goal. It was very intentional. It was very strategic to indoctrinate these, indoctrinate these young boys to Babylonian culture. The king wanted them to think like Babylonians thought and to behave like Babylonians behave and to believe what Babylonians believe down to their name. And I think that what happens with these boys here is something that it happens to us every day. Because... The schemes and the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar is the exact same scheme and strategy that our enemy, the devil, employs on us. I want you to think the things that I like about, think about. I want you to believe the things that I believe. I want you to doubt the way that I doubt. I want you to do the way that I do. The devil wants everybody on earth to toss the teachings of God aside and he'll do anything in his power to make us forget who we can be in Jesus. To forget our name as a child of God and to be rebranded as him. Brainwashing us to live like the world. To blend in instead of standing out. The only way to stand up underneath this kind of strategy, strategy is that we be vigilant. That we have our eyes open to the schemes and the strategies of the enemy. And that's why I believe there's no such thing. Listen to me. Hear me out on this, guys. I'm not standing on the stage judgmentally, but as a brother, there's no way to be a kind of Christian. It's impossible. It's all or nothing. You don't do just a little bit. Because as soon as we let our guard up, the enemy says, ha, gotcha. There's no little bit. It's a full indoctrination. His schemes are real. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says uh, when he's talking to Christians in the, uh, in the book of Ephesians. He's talking to the Ephesian Christians there. And he says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 11, he says, So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Sometimes we've got to stand against an enemy that is way more powerful than we are. 
And, and willpower is just not going to cut it. I can just think my way out of this. No, there's got to be some proactive strategy on our part, that vigilance. And that's why he says, put on the full armor of God. Protect yourself. You're not strong enough by yourself. And in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it here, but you can go look it up yourself in Ephesians chapter 6. He says that we've got to put on our helmet, which is our salvation. One thing that Chris said in his spoken word this morning was that idea that I am saved. That knowledge that says, I am protected, it guards our mind like a helmet. He says that we have a breastplate, which is our righteousness. We do everything that we can to do what is right in the eyes of God so that we can be protected. We have a shield. Our shield is our faith. And no matter how big or how small it is, would you rather have a tiny little shield in battle or no shield at all? Right? If I've got a tiny little shield, I'm still like, all right. (laughs) He says, hold up our shield, which is our faith. And so maybe your faith is feeling small. Get behind it. It will grow. And it will withstand the fiery darts of the enemy as they come. We're told to pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our only offensive weapon that we have is the ability to quote the words of God Almighty because our own words are not powerful enough in themselves. And we wear this belt. He calls it the belt of truth. Guys, truth holds everything together. And he says that our shoes, our feet, are fitted with or prepared with the gospel of peace which is our readiness. The fact that we know that God is able gives us the ability to take one more step, and it gives us peace in that. And so Paul calls these things the armor of God that we can gear up with and we can stand up against the the onslaught of the enemy so that we don't forget who we are and so we don't forget our God. See, what Jesus allows us to do is to be made holy. Holy. That word holy, it's a great word. It's a deep word. When you hear holy, you might think something like, I I just can't, it's unattainable. Or maybe you go to a place where you remember going to church with a a grandparent or your parents and you you see the the Holy Bible and the Holy Eucharist and there's only holy, holy, holy things. I want to tell you what, that's actually not a word that you should stick your nose up. It's a great word. The word holy means to be set apart for God's purpose. Yeah, that's why you call it the Holy Bible. Bible just means book. This is God's book set apart for his purpose. You get that? So God, Jesus makes us holy. He sets us apart and he says, listen, I will look out for you. I will take care of you. I have set you apart for my purpose. And that's what we're going to see happen in the life of Daniel and his friends. As they enter the service of the king, remember while they're being trained, part of their training was uh, to be allowed to eat from the king's table. Which uh, sounds pretty awesome to me. I love me a plate from the king's table. I got a feeling the king ate well. You know, like, he's like, I'm eating like a king. I would love that. But it turns out that there was a little bit of problem there. And this is actually the first time that Daniel has to take a stand in this culture. Um, To eat from the king's table is fantastic. But some of the things from the king's table were things that Daniel was not allowed to eat. Uh, If you know much about Jewish culture, uh, you may have heard of kosher. Like, that's a thing that still survives today. the, the Jewish faith has a dietary law. And especially for these people at Daniel's time, their dietary law was very much in line with whether or not they were following God. Am I going to eat this and am I not going to eat this? God had really good reasons for the, for the specific dietary law. That would be like a whole other teaching series some other time or maybe like a workshop or something. But let, I just take my word for it. that The rules that they had for their eating was a really important thing uh, for staying clean, for staying healthy, and also for being set apart from people. Uh, in God's way. For example, one of the things that was from the king's table was meat that had been sacrificed to these pagan idols. And for a Jew to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol would be, in their conscience, like taking part in that ritual. 
right? And so I can't eat meat sacrificed to an idol because I'm just not going to partake in that at all. So Daniel and his buddies are left with a bit of a dilemma because if they were going to honor God, they couldn't eat that food. One of the big taboos was about that meat sacrifice to idols. And so we see Daniel for this first time, and it might seem like a small thing, but I got to tell you, it was huge. He takes a stand. Let's look at verse 8, and let's just see how this plays out for Daniel. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Okay, we're going to see how this works out for Daniel, but before we do, I want to just note uh, what I read here, and it jumped out to me. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel wasn't willing to compromise here, so he made a resolution. Like the millions of people who resolved to uh, go to the gym on January 2nd, like, I'm going to do it. This is my my decision. I'm going to do it. And so uh, this is my plan. I'm not going to allow myself to be defiled in this way. I've decided in my mind, this is my plan. He determined this plan in advance. He pre-decided what he was going to do. Now, I don't want to read too much into this. I don't like to overly allegorize the Bible and say that every little piece is some big spiritual thing. But I think that what he does here is, is very, very deep. It's something we've got to decide on. Because I wonder what would, have happened, what would have happened if he had not resolved, if he had not pre-decided in his mind what he would do. Like when that plate of delicious food had come in front of him, what if he had not resolved previously to not eat? I'll tell you what he probably would have done. The same thing that I've done time and time again, he would have dug in. I didn't have a decision ahead of time. The king's food got set in front of me. Might be against the rules, but mm, that smells good. I'm diving in. I think the lesson there is that if you don't resolve in advance and plan for specific temptations that you know are going to come your way, you're much more likely to fold under the pressure. It's a plan. It's a resolution. Daniel resolved not to be defiled. And this may have gone really badly for him. His superior, Ashpenaz, or the guards that were over him, they might have punished him severely. He might have been killed for not being willing to follow the, the king's rules. So he was in no position to make any demands, but he had resolved not to be defiled, no matter what. And that was more important to him than playing it safe. So in verse 9, we see how it worked out. Look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, listen to the official, his word. He goes, "Mm, well, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. And so the the guard understands, you don't disobey King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to find out later, this dude was cray-cray, okay? Like, he he got his way or there was no way, okay? He's like, this is the rule. And so then in verse 11, it says, Daniel then said to the guard, with whom the chief official, whom the chief official, official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, okay, fine. How about this? Please, test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat. And water to drink. Then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Sounds reasonable. And so the guard agreed to test him for 10 days. Part one of the resolution to not be defiled, ground zero is this you need to have what I'm gonna call a planned alternative. A planned 
alternative. In other words, what are you going to do instead? Because you know something's coming your way that you don't need to do. What am I going to do instead? If you know that going out with the guys on the weekend is going to get you super drunk and make a fool of yourself and cross all kinds of lines for you, let me ask you, what is your planned alternative? What will you do instead when they invite you? Maybe you plan to leave early or you just let them know, uh, listen, I, I need to not go into certain places because you know how I get in there. Shoot, you can just tell them that you're not into that anymore if that's how far away you need to be from it. If you know that that's what's going to happen to you, the planned alternative, uh, maybe you know that being alone with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your fiance is going to lead to you violating God's standard of not having sex before marriage, which by the way is a thing. It is a thing. God sets standards for that. He says this is for marriage for no other time. It's not for healthy people. It's not for ready people. It's not for mature people. It's for married people, period. That's his rule. It's not mine. It's his. You can be mad at him if you want to. So what's your plan instead? Your planned alternative. Don't just break up with everybody. Relationships are great. So maybe what you do instead is say, you know, we need to, we need to go somewhere else with, with other people. Or we don't need to be alone in my apartment. Or we need to make sure that we set a curfew for ourselves where we're going to be apart. Or maybe we got a, a friend who would love to hang out with us or we could double date. There's lots of other options. When you know the temptation is coming, what is your planned alternative? What is your resolution to not be defiled? I gave two examples. There's dozens and dozens. What's your deal? What's your vice? And let's not act like temptation just sneaks up on us. Boo! Ah! No, no, no. When we see sin coming from a mile away, okay? This might be your first time in church forever in your life, but you know when something that you don't want to do or that you know you shouldn't do is coming. You can see it. And maybe that very first time we can be like, oh, man. I... But, man, the second time, the third time, we see the flags, we see the signs, we see it coming. And when the king's meat is placed in front of us at the table, if we don't have a planned alternative, if we haven't resolved in our heart not to be defiled, We've got to dig in and then deal with, come, with what comes after. Don't wait until the plate is set in front of you. I love this part of the story of Daniel, both for what the boys did and also for what they did not do. Now, what they did not do was throw a fit and grandstand and try to make themselves look holier than thou to the other people there. I don't think. I mean, I, it's not all in the text, but I, as I look at Daniel's story, that's not the kind of guy that I think he does. In fact, most of his worship we see him doing kind of in private. He said, this is kind of between me and my God. I'm going to take a stand when I need to. And I think one thing that our culture, uh, Christians in our world today, many of them, but I'm not going to say them because it's us because we're one family. We don't divide that family. Many of us have a hard time when there's something going on that we don't agree with, and so we decided to just throw a fit about it. Remember the ominous red cup from Starbucks last year? Oh, no, they didn't, <laughs> right? And so people are throwing a fit about a red cup, and it's, it's going crazy. And I remember being a Christian sitting back going, stop, guys. Oh, stop. Just don't, oh, don't say that, right? And, so, and there's so many other ways that we do that in more obtrusive ways. It's, it's the disrespectful picketing. It's the, it's the disrespectful name-calling. Can I remind you that everything you post on, post on Facebook goes to everybody, and, and, and you can't just put it into the, the vacuum of the world that everyone agrees with you. And remember that everything you say represents not only what you stand for, but the king that you claim to serve. And so I love not only what they did here to take a stand, but also what they did not do. Not only did they have a planned alternative, but they also said, listen, um, can we just try this? Can we try this? And then you can see the difference. You can see the difference. It's my challenge to, to us today. That, that we... Give God a chance and we do things his way. Like that, that was their suggestion. 
Let's just give God a chance and do things his way. Um, when I try to do life my way, it just doesn't work as well as when I do it God's way. So Daniel and his superiors found out the same thing. If we move ahead to verse 15, uh, after this 10 days, look what happens. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Did you catch that? Like all the other dudes had to eat vegetables now. They're all like, thanks, Daniel. You know, no meat for us. But what happens is Daniel took a stand by doing things God's way. He makes a difference. In fact, he was not only to not able to not devile himself and his friends, he was also able to create a healthier environment for all the young men in the service of the king, which was way better. Doing it God's way turned out to be way better, and all the young men in the program benefited from it. God honors us when we honor him. Look at how that worked out for Daniel and his friends. We're going to look at verse 17. Verse 17, to these, to these four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. That must have been super helpful while they were trying to learn Babylonian, right? And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, which you'll find later in this book comes in much handy for him. Daniel takes a stand. He did things God's way. And even in this really bad situation, being hundreds of miles from home in a type of captivity that sought to brainwash him, Daniel was able to keep his identity the identity that God gave him, and he was able to impact the world around him. Let's just wrap up the chapter, verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Which again, if you continue reading, which I hope you'll read ahead, you'll see God uses to his glory. You think about these. Had, had these guys compromised, had they not had the courage to stand out, nothing historic would have happened in this book. Nothing. This book wouldn't exist. Think about that. Nothing historic would have happened. We're going to find out through the next few weeks that some majorly historic things happened. So i got to give credit to a guy. Craig Rochelle is a, a, a pastor that I listen to sometimes. He said this about these guys and about this. He says, I don't know about you, but I would rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in. I would rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in. Had they not stood up for what they knew was right, nothing historic would have happened. Guys, we can make a difference in this city. We can make a difference in your family, in your personal issue you're dealing with. We can make a difference in this nation. And I'm going to tell you what, it has nothing to do with an election. It's got to do with shining the light of Jesus into the darkest places of this world and taking a stand where we see the opportunity. God calls us to be different. Because if we're going to take a stand against the devil's scheme, we're going to have to put on the full armor of God. I'm going to tell you, when you wear armor, you look different. You might walk a little funny. You might clink and clank a little bit, metaphorically. You're going to raise all, uh, you're, you're going to get people's attention. Listen, we are going to have to look different. We're going to have to bring up our kids differently than the rest of the world. Just because the Joneses are doing it down the road doesn't mean we have to do it. We're going to look different. We're going to spend our weekends differently. We're going to spend our money differently. We're going to watch TV differently. Our language is going to be different. Our habits, our passions, our hobbies, they're all going to look a little bit or maybe a lot different because the goal has changed. 
We're not here to please the king of the world. We're here to please the king of heaven and earth. So looking different means standing out, taking a stand, even when it might rock the boat or look a little funny to the people around us. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he did for us. He took a stand. You know, Jesus did a super weird thing. He was God in the heavenly realms. And he looked down and he saw the sin in this world and he said, I am the only person who can do something about that. So he takes on human flesh and he becomes a man. And then you follow his story. And the guy was different. He could have hung out with the rich and the noble and the powerful and the influential, but instead he hung out with the despised and the sick and the filthy rotten and the people that didn't have any social status. And he showed them love. And it was in the context of that relationship, in the context of love, that he was able to make a difference in this world. And even more so, he was able to make a difference in each of our lives spiritually through what he did. The Apostle Paul was teaching some Christians in Rome. And in the book of Romans, chapter 12, he teaches this idea of standing out and being different. Listen to what he says in verse uh, 2. Romans 12, 2. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You hear that? Don't blend in. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good pleasing and perfect will. Listen, did you hear that? By not blending in, by standing out, one of the benefits of that is we get to understand God's will for our life. People are constantly coming to me and they, they come to you too and say, man, what do you think God wants from me? What's the purpose of my life? God says, you want to know the purpose of your life? Don't blend into this world. Be renewed. Be renewed by me. Let it change your mind and I will transform you. And as that happens, you will see clearly what I want you to do with your life. When we stop blending in and we choose to stand and do life God's way, Jesus transforms us. He gives us purpose. He gives our life meaning. He makes us new. And so when we stand, we become a beacon of hope shining out into a world of darkness. So not only are we transformed, but the world around us becomes transformed. It is so much easier to stand when we don't have to do it alone. And that's why I love, love, love my church family. Let's shine light into the dark places of this city. Help us shine light into the darker places of your life and the lives of your family. Let's live life God's way. Let's stand God's way. That's chapter one of Daniel. Let me pray for us today. God, we love you. And when I look at this 15-year-old guy, um, he's more of a man than I am. Uh, in so many ways, and I, I could imagine the fear that must have been in their lives as they were uh, rounded up and carried far away from home and taken from their parents and their, uh, what they thought was probably going to be their career and their jobs, and then suddenly thrown into the mix of these Babylonians to do things their way, and I'm sure a lot of those young men folded under pressure. Um, we don't have their stories, but I'm thankful for Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael for the stand that they took. I'm also thankful for the rest of the book of Daniel that shows us that they were able to stick with it and show us that we can have endurance in the storm. Lord, I pray for our church family today as we, uh, as we leave from this place. I hope that we can be encouraged, that we walk out and we say, how can I stand? How can I stand just from the simplest things of what I listen to in my car on the way home or how I react with my coworkers and my boss and, my, uh, and our customers this week? 
Help us stand. Help us make a difference by being the difference in this world. And Lord, may the things that are done through this body be historic, but not for our glory, but for yours. I pray in Jesus' name.